Well, good morning again. Was that not awesome? Man, I mean, something to think about for those of you who might struggle a little bit with worship. We're doing that for all of eternity, just to give you a heads up. We're going to be doing this for all of eternity. This is our opportunity to practice. Now, um, we're continuing in our series called Second, What Happens When God Isn't First, if you just are happening to join us, uh, especially for anyone who might be online tuning in. Uh, We've been in this series since May where we're going through the Bible in a year, and we're looking at this uh, today, we're looking at uh, First and Second Kings as well as First and Second Chronicles, so we're going to cover a lot of ground today. But for those of you who might just be joining us for the first time, as we've been in this series, we've been looking at a passage in First Samuel that kind of helps instruct all of the various uh, topics that we're covering, no matter what books we're in. So I want to make sure we read that together. If you brought your Bible, you can follow along, or if you don't have a Bible, there are some black ones throughout the auditorium. Feel free just to pick one up, and you can follow along. But these are our theme verses here for this series in 1 Samuel. So if you want to read along with me, you can. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So this is what happens when we don't have God first. And the people were practicing that, right? They were demanding a king, relegating God to a much lower level. But there's also this main point that we've been speaking to as we're going through this series. And that is when we don't obey God first, we open ourselves up to putting God last. And it's the last thing I want to do in my life. But if I'm honest, I know that I have done that. And I really want to guard against that. Now, if you were here last week, we covered the books of First and Second Samuel, which was all about transitioning from that period of a theocracy to a monarchy, where it was going to be ruled by a central government and a king under ultimately God's authority. And we were looking at King Saul in particular, he was the first king of Israel, as well as talking about King David who succeeded him. And as we shift to Kings and Chronicles, I want to give an overview of both before we dive into a story that I think has application to all four books. And so as we look at First and Second Kings, this book is certainly descriptive of its contents, right? The history of the kings. Now, just like First and Second Samuel, these two books were originally written as one, and then they were later separated. Now, as we look at the author of First and Second Kings, uh, scholars have not been able to identify the authors of any portions of these books. Now, tradition, traditional guesses have been Samuel and Jeremiah, those uh, prophets, but they actually lack evidence, although they certainly would have influenced who the writers were. Now, since these books clearly incorporate many documents, uh, the complete authorship would include all the writers. They contributed in some way. 
Ultimately, we know that the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and any of the writers uh, who wrote First and Second Kings would have been under uh, God's direction there. Now, in terms of time frame, the history recorded in First and Second Kings is approximately 410 years. So it starts uh, around 970 BC with the death of King David, and then goes to about 560 BC with the release of King Jehoiakim from prison. In terms of themes that we see in the book of First and Second Kings, we see sinfulness of the kings and the nation. I mean, this is like a big theme that you see in these books. If you haven't started reading those yet in your reading plan, you'll get there. You'll see what I mean. Uh, and then you also see uh, conflicts between politics and faith, the glory of God on those uh, kings who were obedient to him. And there weren't too many of them, so those will be shorter reads. God's judgment and the conflict of worshiping God versus other gods. And so these themes keep hearkening back to those Ten Commandments as we continue to progress in the Old Testament. Have no other gods before me. Now, uh, we also see the role of the prophet. This was a development that came out of uh, the transition of that theocracy to a monarchy and out of the time of the judges. And the prophet, as we saw with Samuel, was a priest of God who ended up speaking on God's behalf uh, to the king. Now, when we break down the book of Kings, it might look something like this in terms of the chapters that we see. First Kings, chapters 1 and 2 are all about the death and the final days of King David. And then the book, uh, the chapters 2 through 11 is about Solomon. So King David's son Solomon, next he reigns after him. And then in the rest of First Kings is the divided kingdom of Judah and Israel. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. And then 2 Kings, chapters 1 through 17, is an accounting of the divided kingdom. And then lastly, 2 Kings, the rest of the book, is the kingdom of Judah uh, until their captivity. Okay? So that gives you a basic overview. You are, all, you are all now experts on how these books were written. Okay? You've got that structure. Now let's turn our attention to First and Second Chronicles. And as we look at First and Second Chronicles... Chronicles in Hebrews has this meaning of an ongoing account, somewhat like a diary or a journal entry, maybe even minutes uh, that are taken at a meeting. You could consider it like that. So they, they are the first and second books, actually, of a four-set series, including Ezra and Nehemiah. So these four books provide a priestly history of Israel from the time of Adam to the rebuilding of the house of God and the walls of Jerusalem. If you're familiar with Nehemiah's story, he was the one that came in and helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, at one time, Chronicles was probably just one scroll, again, later separated uh, sometime. Now, in terms of authorship that we see with First and Second Chronicles, an ancient tradition would have credited Ezra as being uh, the person who authored this book. But since the text does not specifically uh, give him that claim, uh, I'm going to just leave that to your interpretation. Now, the time frame of First and Second Chronicles, these books include extensive genealogies from the time of Adam uh, up until uh, the nation's exile and restoration. So it covers the same time period as First and Second Kings. So again, it's that summation, right? The, the journal entries, if you will. But Second Chronicles focuses exclusively on the kings of Judah. 
and we'll get there in terms of the divided kingdom and the focus that was put on that. Now, the content of these books include that they were written sometime between the return from exile, so perhaps the middle of the 5th century B.C., best guess. Now, themes that we see here in these books are a direct connection to God's people in the past. You're continuing to see this, right? In all the texts we read, hearkening back to when God brought his people out of Egypt. And then the continuity of the line of David on the throne of Judah. This is extremely important when we were looking at the Davidic covenant last week. God's promise that he would establish his house and his kingdom forever. The centrality of the temple in the rituals, in focusing on God. And then the importance of worship in worshiping God. And in 1 Chronicles 16, if you, when you get to your reading plan and you read there, you're going to see David bringing the Ark of the Covenant as we heard in that video as Brandon spoke those words. Psalm 96, this is quoted in 1 Chronicles 16. So I encourage you when you get there to read it. But this theme is important, which is why I want us to have an extended time of worship today. Because it matters to God. It is one of the ways we worship him. It's how we align our heart to his. When he continues to say, have no other gods before me, we so easily fall into that trap. So this is a really huge theme. The invincibility of God's people when they obey him and the ultimate inevitability of punishment when we disobey him. So you're, you're hearing week to week very similar themes that are carrying through all of these books. Now, if break down the books of, uh, and the chapters of First Chronicles. Chapters 1 through 9 is all about genealogies. So those of you who absolutely love your family trees and tracing your history, you're going to love these chapters. They're great, right? I mean, they capture it all from the time of Adam uh, up until the tribes of Israel. Then you've also got the reign of David, so that's the rest of First Chronicles. Then beginning Second Chronicles, we have the reign of Solomon. That's chapters 1 to 9. And then the last part of the book of Second Chronicles is the reign of all of Solomon's successors, all the rest of the kings. Okay? We just covered four different books. You guys are all experts now. You know exactly how these things are structured. And while many of these stories we could look at in any of these books are important, there's one in particular that I'd like us to focus on. And I thought uh, the wisest place to put our attention would be on Solomon, right? Because he was known as the wisest man on earth. Now, he is known... Uh, for that, and we see in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, we see God having this conversation with Solomon. He's already taken over as king. He's in place. God is coming to him in a dream, and they're having a conversation. So let's look, starting in verse 5, 1 Kings 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? How many of you would you like God to come to you and ask? <laughs> right? Let's continue. And Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before, your, he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. 
Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So he hasn't even gotten to his ask yet. You notice in the Bible, there are a lot of words. People can use a lot of words to say things. But listen to what Solomon is saying. Number one, he's acknowledging he's only there because of what his father did. So great awareness on his part. Secondly, acknowledges, I'm young. I don't have much in the way of leadership. So he starts off in a great humility place, acknowledging what God already knows. And then he gets to the ask, right? So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Right? Gotta love that he's coming to God asking for wisdom. Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us might have wished for some of these things, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like, be like you before and never will be again. I mean, talk about putting yourself in a whole other category. This would be like a mic drop moment because no one is ever going to experience this again. God is making this proclamation. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during in your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. I love it. I love how Solomon started his reign as king, asking God for wisdom. And no sooner had he asked this than was it on full display because he has two women who come to him. As you read in, uh, in 1 Kings, you'll see... The, I'm not there yet, Ron. Ron thank you. Uh, as you see uh, that Solomon has these two women come they happen to be prostitutes. They're living in the same house. They both have baby boys three days apart. And in the middle of the night, one of the ladies rolls over her son and he ends up dying. And then she, I mean, that's bad enough. Then she takes her dead son, switches it with the other lady's child, baby, and now you have the conflict. So they're coming to King Solomon, asking him to settle this dispute. And so he hears their story. He asks his servant to bring him his sword, and he says, I'm just going to go ahead and cut the baby in half. You can both have a part of him. Of course, the biological mother is appropriately freaking out, saying no, and I'd rather have him be alive than dead, and so go ahead and give him to the other woman. And then the other woman, I mean, just talk about, I mean, she's just mean, ugly, ugly, ugly. How could she say this? Just go ahead and cut him in half. That's fine. So King Solomon wisely discerned who the real mother was, was able to give the baby back. And of course, everyone is standing back in absolute awe of his wisdom in this moment. And Solomon 
in, ter in terms of talking about his, his reign and his kingship, wisely placed officials around him to oversee all of the various areas because he was amassing all of this wealth that God promised him. But he lived with great wealth, honor, and peace. He was the first king to actually have any peace. He had the temple built in seven years. If you uh, have already read this account, you know King David desperately wanted to build uh, the temple for God, but God wouldn't let him because of all the bloodshed and said, no, your son will build it. And so here Solomon is in seven years building the temple. He's credited with writing 3,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs. And upon completing the building of the temple, as you read through that, you'll see that Solomon prays this prayer a dedication to God, dedicating the temple to him. And then the nation spends two weeks offering burnt offerings and sacrifices and honoring God. I mean, a huge party for two weeks. And Solomon's prayer lasts well over a chapter. And I want you to see God's response to this dedication and to this prayer that Solomon has made in 1 Kings chapter 9, starting in verse 4. As for you... If you walk before me as your father David walked with a heart of integrity and what is right, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now here comes the caution. If you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, right? Again, he's hearkening back to the Ten Commandments, the very first one, have no other gods before me. I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. So, you know, great that you've had this really big party and that you've sacrificed all these things for me and said all these wonderful things, but let's get to brass tacks and just make sure you're really clear on this. And he continues, Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will scoff. They will say, why did the Lord, why did the Lord do this to this land and to this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. They held on to other gods and bowed and worshiped to them and served them. Because of this, the Lord brought all of this ruin on them. Right? So God is giving him this warning. He's making it really clear. And this is the same warning. This is no different than he gave to his father David, the same warning he gave to King Saul, and that he gives to all the successor kings that are going to come after him. And so there is this pivotal truth, I think, that we all need to grab a hold of when we're thinking about the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, that will ever live. But here is a truth that applies to all of us, and it's this. It doesn't end well for those who don't apply wisdom. Plain and simple. And it doesn't matter if you're the wisest person on earth, like Solomon. If we don't apply wisdom, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And God had warned the nation of Israel 
long before Solomon was ever alive, when they came out of Egypt, not to marry foreign women, because if they did, it would turn their hearts away from following God, and they would follow after these other gods. So how did Solomon, knowing this had been passed down from generation to generation, this warning, how did he apply that warning where it came to his his wives and marrying foreign women, he marries 700 princesses and has 300 concubines. That's how he obeys God, right? Wisest man who ever lived, and he still did not apply this truth properly. And notice what 1 Kings 11.2 says about Solomon and his feelings about all these women. What does it say? It says, to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. Have no other gods before me. Why? Because they will turn your hearts away. The caution, generation after generation that God gives us, don't do it. And yet this is what Solomon does. And just to prove God's point about how marrying foreign women uh, and the problem it will cause in turning your heart away to follow other gods, notice what Solomon does in 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 7, as a result of his actions. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. Kind of like, in your face, God. I don't know, certainly don't know what Solomon's motivations were other than to please his wives. They, he builds these other altars for them to worship their gods. And we, my wife Tracy and I were in Jerusalem just this last January. It is a stone's throw. I mean, like right over to this field in Hayborn that is undeveloped. That's how close we're talking that would have been in God's face. He's supposed to be residing in this temple. And what does Solomon do? He loves his wife so much he doesn't want to displease them. He ends up having these altars built to these abhorrent gods. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. So in looking at wisdom, who you surround yourself with matters. Solomon did well in the first part of his reign as king. But that changed over time the more women he accrued. And his first wife, he married a princess from Egypt. <laughs> Here God brings him out of Egypt and he marries one of these princesses from Egypt. And they turned his heart away from following God. But it wasn't just him that it impacted. It also impacted his son, Rehoboam. And after Solomon dies, Israel was preparing to make Rehoboam king. And when they asked if he would lighten the harsh service that his father had placed on them, especially during those years of building the temple, uh, and they said, if you'll do that, we will serve you, right? Rehoboam asked the people to give him three days. Always a good tactic when you're making a decision. Give me a few days and I'll get back to you, right? So he sends them away, tells them to come back. In the meantime, he talks to the elders who served his father and asked for their advice. What should I do? We see it here in 1 Kings 12, verse 7. He says this. Today, this is the elders speaking. If you will be a servant to this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. 
unfortunately, which is kind of a common word as we read through all of this text. Unfortunately, he doesn't listen to these elders. Instead, he listens to his friends he grew up with. And <laughs> after three days, the people return. And here is how he responds to them based on this input and advice he gets from his friends. He says, I'm going to add to the yoke my father gave you, and I'm going to make it heavier instead of lighter. And by the way, the whips we use to discipline you, we're also going to add some barbed wire to that. How do you like that? Well, as you can imagine, that didn't go over well. This is where we get to the divided kingdom. Instead of one being one whole nation, now the kingdom is divided because the people reject him as king. They make Jeroboam their king for the 11 other tribes. Rehoboam is made king over Judah because God made a promise to David that his king would be, kingdom would be established forever. There would someone be sitting someone on the throne. So Rehoboam assumes because David was from that tribe of Judah, that's why Rehoboam is now king of Judah, and Jeroboam is now over all the rest of Israel. So now you have the divided kingdom. As you read in uh, the subsequent books, you'll see this reference to these two different kingdoms because this is where it divided. The people said, enough, we're not going to live like this anymore. So it turns out who you surround yourself with matters. Who's in your inner circle? Rehoboam had some friends that he grew up with, and unfortunately, they gave him some really bad advice. But if we turn that to ourselves, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, who are we listening to? Who are we giving a place to speak into our lives? Because unfortunately for Solomon, he surrounded himself by a bunch of wives who led his heart astray from following his God. So to put God first this week, we have several uh, suggestions for you. Things that you can do, I think, to help us keep God first. Here's the first thing I would strongly suggest you do. Do an inventory of who's in your inner circle. Are the people you're surrounding yourself with people who just tell you whatever you want to hear? Yes, people. Because I want them to tell me what I want to hear. Instead of people, have you surrounded yourself with people who will tell you the truth? Maybe stuff you don't want to hear. But especially people who will direct you toward God's word, direct you to God's ways. As we saw in today's text, if you will follow me, if you do these things, God promises to give us life, to give us blessings. Not always easy. There's still hardship but it's going to go so much better for us. Who are you surrounding yourself with? I strongly encourage you to do an inventory this week and look at who you're surrounding yourself with. And maybe if you identify that you're surrounding yourself with people who are just telling you what you want to hear and maybe giving you advice and it's not turning out so well for you, maybe you need to change out who's in your inner circle and who you're listening to. Second thing, worship God this week. As loud as you can, in the shower for some of you, in the car, crank up the music, but begin practicing as we did this morning, giving God our worship. The Bible says if we don't praise him, the very rocks will cry out. God has designed us when we follow him to give him our worship, our attention and affection like no one else. 
And that includes singing at the top of your lungs. I'm convinced. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. I'm way too loud. But I'm not going to hold back because God has designed us to worship him. Worship him this week. And then the last thing is humble yourself. Humble yourself some more. And then when you've done that, humble yourself just a little bit more. We cannot possibly, I cannot possibly practice humility enough because it's too easy, as we were talking about last week, to pick up our crown and put it on. And if you weren't with us last week, go watch our recording from last week. You'll know what I'm talking about. We need to lose the crown. Jesus modeled it as we did uh, communion this morning. He came to earth to die. He modeled for us what true humility looks like. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant and he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. That's humility. Bowing our knee before Almighty God and acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. This week, whether you need to get yourself in a position where when you're getting out of bed, let your knees hit the ground and just acknowledge it. Whatever you need to do to humble yourself and worship him. That's our prayer. I know that's what I need to practice in order to make God first and to guard against relegating him to second, third, or a much lower place in my life. Next week, we are going to be looking at first or last. First or last. So you definitely want to to be here for that as we finish up this series. And then lastly, before I let you go, we do have a missions meeting that is happening after our second gathering at 1130. There will be snacks. You can go out to brunch now or hang out. Uh, We want to give you an update on their Kenya trip because they had such an amazing time. You want to hear some God stories and what happened there through this team that we as a church sent. I encourage you. It'll be over in the student ministries room at 1130. We would love to see you there. God bless you, and we'll see you guys next week.